The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Richard Avedon once said that his portraits are more about him than the people he photographs. I love that quote, because it reminds me of how important it is to put a bit of myself into each photograph. It's one of the reasons why I describe the process of photography as more making pictures rather than taking pictures. Catherine Just is a photographer who is the person both behind and in front of the camera whenever she's creating these beautiful and haunting self-portraits. Using medium format cameras, film, and long exposures, she creates images that are more about feeling something than just looking at something. Her experiences with addiction and recovery have not only inspired her work, but have also provided her the voice that so eluded her as a young girl. Well, um, welcome to the Candid Frame. It's really a pleasure, Catherine, to have you to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I I, I really love your work, and Thank you. and one of the things that that I find remarkable about it is your ability to turn your camera on yourself. <laughs> I have such an aversion to that. <laughs> which is why I do audio. <laughs> but the truth comes out. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think that's really fascinating photographers who are not only able to use themselves as subject matter, but are able to use it in a way to convey something much bigger than just what they look like. Mm. And and I'm wondering, you know, where the interest in in doing that sort of came from and how that it, how it evolved from there? I love this question. Thank you. Um, I still have an aversion to it. I mm. think um, I think that's, it might possibly be just the lifelong journey of facing myself, whether it be in front of a camera or just in my life. Yeah. And because I'm alone, it makes it a lot easier because nobody's staring at me with the camera in my face. And I have a lot of empathy for people who hire me to take their picture because I understand how uncomfortable it can be to be that vulnerable in that scene and be asked to show up in such a big way. Mm-hmm. But really, it started because I got sober when I was 18 years old from a drug and alcohol addiction, and I didn't know what else to do with myself. So I I call it checking myself into art school. I went from treatment to art school, basically. And I was still so socially uncomfortable and uncomfortable in my own skin. I had a very hard time looking people in the eyes or being in the room or having an opinion about something. I just was completely overwhelmed by the prospect of being here, but I didn't want to live the way I was living anymore. So I was showing up the best I could. And on the uh, when we had assignments to photography assignments, I would 
go in my dorm room. I specifically asked to be in my own room for the duration of college because I was sober and I I knew what most kids were doing (laughs) and I didn't want to have to deal with that. So I was in my own dorm. On the weekends, everybody was in the hallways in everybody's rooms doing what people do when they're in college. And I, I, I turned the camera towards myself because I was the only one in the room. And I didn't know how to interact with other people. And so it was by default, really. And then I started using long exposures in my self-portraiture almost partially because I was concerned about what was living underneath the surface of my life because those were the issues that brought me to using drugs and alcohol in the first place, the Mm. discomfort and emotions and such. But it was also a means to hide myself. So that's the long version of why how that got started in the first place. I mean, you came into recovery at a very early age. How early did you start using? I was 13 when I when I started, and it just quickly evolved from drinking to smoking pot to doing crystal meth. Oh, and man. so uh, the last two years, from 16 to 18 years old, I was doing crystal meth from the moment I woke up until, you know, I never went to sleep. So <laughs> um, I never wanted to come down off of that drug. It was extremely painful to withdraw. So I just tried to maintain, which of course doesn't work after a while. You need more and more to be able to maintain mm-hmm. the level of removing yourself from yourself. Uh, luckily, I really was on my knees at 18 and I heard a voice in my head that said, there's more to this life than what you're living. And I've literally been leaning in to figure out what that is ever since. I have really no interest in using drugs or alcohol. I'm very curious about what happens when I stick with discomfort and stay in the room, so to speak. And photography has been a vehicle to Help me process through all of it. Yeah. Was there something that triggered this road to Damascus moment that you had? It was almost like Groundhog Day in my life. I was in high school. I was not showing up to high school. Um, I was doing more and more drugs and um, just so uncomfortable. I didn't care if I died or not. And mm-hmm. really, drugs, you know, I was very heavy handed because I didn't care if I was here or not. It was like my version of trying to kill myself. And so there was just a moment where I was just very uncomfortable to the extreme and it had built up to such a point where I didn't want to be here anymore. Mm -hmm. And I was literally at the bottom of my street screaming. My mother was on the street with me that I wanted to die. And that's when I like heard the voice. And I'm sure there was were other times, but I just was not interested in hearing until I was ready to hear that or ready to ready to do what it took to not die. Yeah. You know, it seems like that you were going through an amazing amount of pain and that that was the reason that you you started using. And then when you stop using, the pain, those emotions, those thoughts don't completely go away. And, and one of the only ways you get to contend with them and be able to rise to work through them is by facing them. And, Correct. And I, and I wonder how you turning the camera on yourself sort of paralleled what you were doing in recovery if it did. Mm. Yes, you're right on the money as far as uh, I literally felt like I was crawling out of my skin. It felt like I literally, I would say that I had a layer of skin removed. Like I was just open and everything in the world was very difficult and poked at me in a prickly kind of way. And the anxiety that I faced on a daily level just to be here was so extreme that when I did drink and did feel that ease set in and my mind calm. I felt like I had found heaven. And then it just rapidly increased 
to where I was hanging out with the wrong people and needed more to ease that pain. And crystal meth, I'm telling you, I did it once to relate to the other friends of mine who were doing it. And I couldn't believe that all the anxiety went away and I was having what I considered to be deep, meaningful, connected conversations for hours with people that I could barely look at for years because I was too afraid. Mm. And so that for me was just nirvana. And I just never wanted to go back to how I had been feeling prior to that. And so, yes, once you take away the drugs and alcohol, then I'm left with all that stuff and I have nowhere to go except to, to ask for help outside myself. So I was going to a ton of meetings. I like, I um, inserted myself in AA and I loved hearing that others had similar experiences. And that was a turning point for me as well as being in school, learning about conceptual photography and other artists who were taking what was happening on the inside and turning it into something visual. It was a way, because I struggled so much with articulating how I was feeling and actually mm. terrified to say it or to have conversations with people, this way of like diving into an emotion and dissecting it down to some sort of metaphoric visualization of it just helped me to understand myself and distract myself honestly in the yeah. beginning i didn't know what else to do it, it makes a lot of sense because it seems like you find you found your voice not through words but through the pictures i did yeah. i you know as soon as i recognized that this could be a way for me to understand emotions and understand just by looking at my process was to to talk about write down what it was that i was interested in what was bothering me, whatever it was that was on my mind mm -hmm. that troubled me that I was sort of obsessing about and couldn't stop thinking about, I would start writing about and circle words and go to the dictionary and the thesaurus and figure out what exactly that was. Okay. <laughs> and so that turned into the images. Was there a particular image or a set of images that you created that sort of made you realize that these ideas, these feelings, this, this, these realizations that you had uh, about yourself and what you were going through, that you had created images that you felt like, yeah, that, that's it. That's what I'm experiencing. That's what I'm thinking. Can you give me an example of one of those early images or sets of images that, that s spoke that way back to you? Yeah, you know, I was just writing about that this morning in an Instagram post about uh, I marked a moment in my life, and that's basically, I also feel I'm creating evidence of what's living underneath the surface through this process. And so I was trying to articulate through images what it felt like to celebrate nine years of sobriety. And I created an alternative environment in my apartment, and I was trying to create the psyche basically outside my mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, um, basically I felt like I was a performance artist because I was doing self portraiture, but I was trying to evoke an emotion when you looked at the picture. So I had to move inside these long exposures to try to capture that. And I wouldn't know it until I saw it. So I was posing and moving and moving faster or slower, turning my head certain ways or wearing certain clothes and holding certain objects. And it really was that was a potent image for me to capture because I was moving into feeling more comfortable in my own skin, but still feeling a bit shy about being in the world and about who I was. And so I wanted to try to find a way to 
celebrate what I had done, which is show up for nine years. Mm. And also those spaces and places that I still was afraid of. And, and I felt it at the end of a roll of 24 exposures and I had the contact sheet and I was so afraid to show anybody the images where I thought that I didn't look so great. Okay. But it wasn't about that. You know, it wasn't about that. I was about to ask you about any reluctance in sharing the images. Yeah, yeah. I was very because I I because I was insecure. And when I teach now, I do talk about, you know, making pretty pictures or, you know, are are you making pretty pictures or are you actually talking about a subject and you happen to be in it? And what is that fine line? So in the beginning, it, I couldn't make anything that I didn't want to show people. Mm-hmm. So I've, I have struggled with that in my, you know, in my creative process of really being honest in my work, not just dealing with my insecurities and ego in my work. Do you have to have a clear idea about what idea or theme you're addressing before you make the photographs? Or do you sometimes discover it as a result of going through the process of creating images? It, it has really changed and I think it weaves in both directions. Mostly, I stop, drop, and start creating and see how the work talks back to me. I really feel that the once you, at least for me, when I dive into the, the process of making, when I look at the image and really think about what it's saying, I can make decisions of what's next. Rather than trying to orchestrate a picture, which I have done, that was very much done in the in the early years, but now I really try to just drop in and and allow it to have its own form. And usually, I mean, the unexpected is where the miracle happens for me. I am in love with that process of the unknown. It's very difficult to go to the unknown. And sometimes I don't make work for quite a while because I, I am afraid to step in. But that's, I actually really prefer it. And is the nature of the fact that you're using film and the sort of, and, and, and the reality that you don't immediately know what you got play a part in, in that? Yeah, I really love the the process of creating with film. However, I have to say I am into instant gratification, so I do <laughs> tend to lean on Polaroid a lot. And so I I am still using a tool that I can see instantly, even though it's film. I am getting a negative and a positive right away, or just a positive, depending on the film. So it, it hasn't been a roll of 35 in a while. <laughs> okay. For people who are who are not that familiar with your work, can you explain what your, what your process is in terms of the equipment that you use, the film that you use, what you know, any sort of the, te- the technical side in terms of what you do in terms to create those images? Sure, yeah. I'm fascinated with allowing a camera to do what it does without being super controlling technically. Um, and I use a Polaroid SX-70, and I've noticed in low-light situations it will stay open and I can't really control how long. So my process is to hold up the camera and see what happens and then start to move inside that space of, of time where it's open and create imagery that way. And I, I use um, an old 4x5 camera, and I haven't really used the tilt shift, which is basically what people know that camera for, but I like to use a 4x5 and um, either expired Polaroid Type 55 or the new 55 film, which is giving me a positive and a negative instantly. But I love the, the way that both of those cameras force me to slow down. And it's a process mm, that yeah. is a system that uh, sinks me into a present, present moment. I don't, I'm not into post at all. I don't want to be on my computer at all. 
and this is this gives me the freedom to create in the moment and be done when I'm done after that session. When you started photographing other people for, you know, assignment work or for commission work, tell me about that transition because you know, you talked about feeling this awkwardness, you know, this in inability to sort of verbalize who you were and what you were experiencing with, with people. And then all of a sudden that's, that's part and parcel of what you have to do as a portrait photographer, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, what was that transition like and how did, how did the fact that you had turned well, the camera on yourself help you? Well, I, I do, like I said, have a lot of empathy for people. So my role I think is to be calm and to show somebody that I'm not scary and and that we are in a conversation with each other rather than them needing to pose and show up in any sort of way that's not authentic. And that comes from time spent mm. with me. So I don't just run in and have the lights set up and we're just go, go, going and I'm pose, pose, posing. I really am sinking in with them. And a lot of it ha also has to do with my social anxiety because before every single shoot, I want to quit my career and flee to Mexico <laughs> and be done because I don't know, because I don't pose people, because I don't know who that person is yet, because I don't know what's going to happen and I'm nervous myself. I'm moving into the unknown of creative process with somebody that's paid me money to give them something and it's terrifying to me. Terrifying. And what's surprising to me is when something happens because it's not, a, there's no formula to it. I just bring all the things that I bring and I tell, I'm much more apt to telling people now that we make art together and we're collaborating together and it's a process of discovery together rather than them giving me a shot list. So, and that's, that's just been something that I've discovered over time that I don't work that well when somebody's telling me which images they want for their website. I mean, I can do them. There's yeah. just not anything creative in that for me. Anybody can do that. So it's terrifying. <laughs> That's I, the answer. I, you know, it's refreshing to hear you admit that because I think a lot of photographers experience that, but very few are willing to admit it. Oh, yeah. I've actually, the more I talk about it, the more I hear that most people do when they are dealing with showing up fully in the present moment and not, you know, having a formula. I, I wish I had one <laughs> to lean back yeah. on. Because of that, but I don't. So I was I, when I was teaching. Whenever I teach my street photography course, one of the first things I tell people is how anxious and terrified I am every time I go out to start making photographs. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it just it doesn't go away. It's just the fact that I have, I have a methodology. Mm -hmm. I have certain things that I do. Mm -hmm. You know, I preset my camera. I go out. I look at the light, I look at the shadow, I start looking at shapes, I don't look for subject matter or any, you know, and then just doing those steps one after the other gets me into the process of seeing and then I start making pictures and then I make the first photograph and mm. then all of a sudden I'm in the middle of doing it. Absolutely. I love that. I love the pureness and the truth of that. And I find that that is an honest way of making pictures for me. And it's difficult to show up in that way, I think. Like to have, to constantly be forcing yourself to face yourself in that way is brave, I think. But that's, I think that's part of what's called for when you want to make photographs, like you said earlier, that just don't look pretty. 
right. that photographs that mean something, regardless of what the subject matter, whether it's yourself or someone else or even or even a landscape or a, a abstract. It's like, what do you want to say with it? But it's yeah. I think one of the reasons that people sometimes get frustrated about their pictures is not so much because it's not technically perfect. It's because they just feel like it's not saying anything. They just don't mm. feel that there's anything special about it. And I think it's I think it's tied into this reluctance to put themselves out into the photograph. Is Interesting. is that what's you you teach this process to students? What's the trepidation? What's the biggest concern for them beyond anything with respect to the technical? Gosh. It is really about a story that they're telling themselves. And it makes me emotional talking about it because I see so many people come through my class saying I'm not a photographer or I just have an iPhone, or I'm not like you, or so-and-so that they admire. Hmm. And there's no way I can do it. So they're already showing up with this um, this feeling of being behind the eight ball, so to speak. And, and I feel, as a teacher, my job is to support them in saying yes to anything they create, and that that to shift that story and that belief system from wherever it came from. And usually there's a teacher or a parent that said one thing that planted a seed, and that's the end of that, right? So... I feel that the best thing we can do, at least in my classes, we are all supporting each other and making in the act of making and showing up fully over time, because I think that does take practice to show up um, and allow yourself, give yourself permission to make what you think might be ugly, because there's something there for you if you're willing to go in that space. But it's, it, is, it is a difficult one to face. I mean, I, I still face it. I'm definitely not a pro at, mm. at that. But I think that it is important to uh, just offer people an opportunity to look at that and let and learn to let go of that over time. And I have seen people shift that around and become photographers with blue chip galleries selling their work for thousands of dollars and mm -hmm. saying yes to themselves as a result. It's, it's incredible. I'm, I'm constantly amazed by how the people who don't see themselves as photographers produce the more amazing work than the people who are photographers. Yes. And I often think it's because they're not burdened by being a slave to the camera or being <laughs> preoccupied with the technical. Yes. I do feel that there are photographs that are so technically sound. I don't know how they made it, but I'm sure I could figure it out if I wanted to, but that's not necessarily a soulful image. It's just technical. Right. And you can find out how to do that on YouTube or something. But I feel like when you have something to say, you can take a picture of the same landscape and it can feel completely different. And I think that's really the difference between, and I don't know if it's somebody calling them a photographer or not, but it is somebody who wants to explore something more than just a technically sound photo for me. Talk to me about your Capturing Breath on Film series. Capturing Breath on Film came out of nowhere. And i that's usually where my my ideas happen is a instant thought that I just say out loud and then I do it. But I was coming up on my 30th year of sobriety. I'd actually, I was moving into my 29th, celebrating 29 years and I wanted to mark it like I have everything else that happens in my life in a, a way that meant something to me. And I decided to turn the camera around and offer other people an opportunity to mark the moment that mattered for them by doing a portrait as a long exposure, so I'm capturing their breath, their heartbeat, and their dreams, wishes, and desires on that one piece of film. And I'm using the 4x5 camera and the new 55 or expired Polaroid, whatever is available. And uh, I'm going around the world capturing what I consider to be the pulse of the planet. 
And I feel like, I mean, it's evolving. It started from this idea of marking my my sobriety by celebrating humans, <laughs> basically, mm-hmm. that we're all here and we're all connected. And now I'm seeing it as this much bigger, maybe lifelong, living, breathing project that keeps changing. And now I'm I'm capturing the soul of a, the Marrakesh Film Festival. I'm going to Oaxaca and capturing the soul of the Oaxaca Film Festival. And I'm capturing the soul of the Laurel Canyon coffee shop and the people who have been there and go there every single day for 15 years. It's like mini projects inside of a bigger project, which has been fascinating to me to just allow the project to breathe, you know, and tell me things. And it's been an incredible opportunity for me to deepen my experience of connection with other people because they come to me because they hear the project. They want to be in it because they are going through something. They want to intend something for their future. They want to mark something that's happening in their present moment or they're grieving something from their past. And it's, it's not, it's not just a fun shoot. It's really a deep, meaningful experience for them. And I have had, I've been deeply moved by it. Yeah. It's a wonderful project. I, Thank I, you. I, I love it. I, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, the, the culmination of it all. Thank you. It's, but like a lot of things, it's a wonderful idea, but it doesn't necessarily result in taking the action to make it happen. And as you said earlier about your students, uh, you said that, you know, in, in the workshop, you get students to say yes to themselves. Yes. What did it take for you to say yes to yourself in this case? Because as with any idea that's really exciting, there's always some resistance in terms of, <laughs> do I really want to do this? Should I do this? Can I do this? So how did, how did you know, what did you have to work through to finally say yes to yourself in terms of this project? This, honestly, I have an easier time saying yes to the big things and getting on a plane and going to Paris by myself and not knowing the language or, or anybody there and doing the big things. I don't know really? how I did that. Yeah, I really... I find myself on a taxi, in a taxi, alone at night in Mexico, and realizing what I'm doing and thinking, who are you? (laughs) How did this happen? (laughs) I was never a girl who thought, I can't wait to travel the world. I can't wait to be alone and travel the world. I can't wait. None of that. It just literally came to me one day. I said it out loud, and I started to manifest it through a process that I, I mean, we could go into that a little bit if you want, but future writing played a big role in moving myself into this project um, in a way that felt good to me. It's the little things that I have to say yes to myself around. Like being here on the planet and doing life stuff is very challenging for me to show up in the ways that other adult human beings are supposed to show up. I completely get that. (laughs) But, But tell me about this future writing. Uh, future writing was suggested to me by a business coach who lives a very big life and her business is not linear. So I was looking at her life thinking she's, she's, um, practicing for the Olympics. She has a book. She bought Julia Child's house in the South of France. She's a business coach. She has a house in Wisconsin. I mean, like all over the map. And she said, future write every day for five minutes and write as if you're in your future right now. So instead of saying in the future, I will have blah, blah, blah. You Mm -hmm. say, I'm sitting in my favorite cafe in Morocco, waiting for the collector to arrive, who purchased another piece of my artwork. And we're going over to his house to install it over his fireplace. And I feel so grateful that I have this connection with this friend of mine. And I go into detail about how I feel in my body, what I'm wearing, where I'm sitting, 
what I'm drinking, what is happening in my career, and the things that are currently burdening me are somehow no longer existing in my future. And I write about that as well, as if it's happened, whatever it is has been fixed, and I am now this new version of myself. And over time, I do a, re- a reverse engineering of, of it as well. So I ask myself, what is one thing I can do today to move myself into my future right now? And so that quickly moved me to uh, saying yes to things, making artwork I wasn't making before as far as printing it instead of just making it and having it on sitting somewhere. I was creating portfolios so that that guy who was a friend of mine who collects my work in Morocco could buy it. <laughs> uh-huh. So... And that actually, the weird thing is, is that I was writing about Morocco uh, daily for a couple months and out of the blue, I get an email from a friend saying, I don't know why, but I just felt compelled to email you because I'll be at the Marrakesh Film Festival and I wanted to invite you to come and do your project there. (laughs) So things started happening as I started to write it, not just externally, but internally, I started to become that woman who knew she was an artist who knew that she had talent that was given to her and that it was a responsibility to share it and that I had a career that really felt deeply meaningful to me and I could do the things that I'm doing now in a way that felt easeful and, and, you know, I'm still working out that future. So I'm still writing that out, but, but it's been an incredible tool for me. And I've actually taught workshops in it because people were watching me do this project and I mean, I put everything in storage and just left and and didn't totally have it planned out. And I actually really prefer it that way. But I felt the way I wanted to feel. That so is, I was teaching other, go ahead. That's, <laughs> that's a fantastic tool because it just, it reinforces what, you know, what I've, I've learned is that the way we feel about any day is really a matter of perspective. Absolutely. Because yeah? today may have been pretty much exactly the same day as yesterday, but yesterday I was just feeling crappy. Me too. And I was feeling terrible (laughs) that my day was just crap, and today I was like really happy. And I'm like, nothing's different. You know, the bank account, the same balance is the same. Mm -hmm. You know, my circumstances are no different, but it's just about how I perceived it. And this whole idea kind of re- uh, reaffirms that whole idea because it's really just a matter of how you're looking at your life and whether you're looking at the future or, or looking at it now, it's all about, you know, the choices you're making in terms of how you're judging where you're yes. at. Um, around my 10th year of, of sobriety, I was super depressed and didn't want to be here anymore because AA wasn't doing it for me. I just felt like I'd hit a wall and I, I just didn't know what else to do. So out of desperation, I found uh, a friend invited me to go listen to some teachers talk about the Toltec path as um, passed down by Miguel Ruiz, who wrote the book, The Four Agreements. And mm-hmm. and I found like, I didn't know what they were talking about at all, but I, I felt like I had found my people. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went on a path of discovering that all of suffering, at least in this path, is caused by the beliefs you have and the thoughts you're having. And of course, things happen to people, external things happen, but how long do we need to suffer is really a case of how long we want to think about it (laughs) and what we're thinking about it (laughs) as much as how long we're thinking about it, if that makes sense. And so every single day since I've I've learned that practice, I'm constantly noticing and and wanting desperately to become awake enough to have a, a, a... 
a space in between my thought and the person who's thinking the thoughts and decide whether it's true or not and if I want to get hooked by it or not and what and use tools I've learned to shift my attention and perception yeah. about that. No, I mean, all this work makes you very conscious of all the noise in your head. Oh, yeah. Right? And I think that when you're photographing someone, then you know that there's a lot of noise happening in their head. Yeah. Sometimes it's very obvious. Sometimes it's not so subtle. But you know that you're wrestling with that, even though they don't verbalize it. So you talked about earlier that you, you know, spend time initially sort of talking to them. But considering how much self-reflection you you take, you know, that you that you have of yourself, how does that help you in terms of being able to contend with the noise in your subject's head to be able to get them to be right here, right now with me in this moment to make the photograph and not somewhere else? Uh, It is a process. And I've noticed uh, if I'm with someone longer than an hour, that it usually takes an hour and that we both sink in and we, I can feel it when both of us click into it. And it's, it's a different experience. We're not just, she's not, she or he is not, um, grappling as much, but we're having a conversation and they're feeling more at ease, but it does, I notice it in their body language and I have to create an, a space that is supportive of them in a bigger way. So it's not just about the photo shoot, it's about the food I have to offer them and the music that's playing and the environment that we're in and how much time I spend being calm and just talking with them and making art with them and having fun and jumping around and singing like a crazy person <laughs> and belting out some opera. And it's for me too. We're both trying to get past all that noise so that we can find what's true. Mm. And it is, it is a process. It doesn't happen right away. Well, tell me about uh, the work that you're doing with probably your favorite collaborator, Max. Oh, my little dude. Max, I feel, is seen. He's he's eight years old now. He has Down syndrome. And what I realized upon his entry into the world is that our world doesn't feel that he's valuable. Uh, and so, and people look at him and think he is Down syndrome and they don't really see past it to recognize him as an individual. And I've been thinking about this for a while. I want to create uh, two things. One is that I want to create the Max Harrison Foundation where there and a space. Okay, this is like out of the out of the top of my head thinking out loud that maybe it's not a space, but maybe it's something that travels the world but where photographers are teaching kids with Down syndrome how to use cameras for self-expression and that they have their own shows, we have group shows, and that in that way they're advocating for themselves to show the world that you can give them the same assignment, but they view it differently because they are all unique individuals, right? Mm-hmm. So it is, it's two things. One is teaching them a tool for self-expression, but the other is advocacy to shift the paradigm. And the other is a project I want to do where I'm doing, and I just started it with him, where we're doing long exposures. We're basically, basically I'm capturing his breath on film and it's long exposures and I want him to move and I ask him to, he loves it um, because I want to explore what people see, which is not my son. So I'm creating all of these um, out of focus, blurry portraits of Max And I want to have a whole body of work that explores what that is and what that means and print them large and travel with those too and speak about 
what that he doesn't recognize that he's having the time of his life. <laughs> but as his mom looking at the opportunities he's not given, I would like to at least offer a conversation to be had about that. Has working with him and seeing his reaction to it sort of changed the way you see what you're doing? As far as that project or in general? Just in general, just working with him. <laughs> well, I can say that he just started playing soccer on Saturday and he was so excited about kicking the ball. He didn't care where the ball was going. He just liked <laughs> to be kicked. And so he would kick the ball and look over at me and cheer like arms in the air yelling that he was so excited that he kicked it. And he would, and then he would see us, you know, excited for him. And the whole team is going down one way on the field and he's just kicking the ball wherever the heck he wants. He's not even with the team. And I think, he is having the time of his life, and it doesn't matter to him at all mm -hmm. what the social structure is or what the confines of the system is. He just wants to kick. <laughs> and so in that regard, I feel like it's a great spiritual teaching that um, we have learned to not celebrate ourselves in just the act of doing or being here or doing whatever we want and not, not feeling like we're doing it wrong if we're not doing it within that construct of whatever it is that we find ourselves in. I mean, what a gift that is to see on a regular basis. Yeah. The one thing I have to say, Max has a whole range of feelings. It's not just happy, which is what most people think. And yeah. when he is upset about things, he has a, as strong an opinion as his happiness shows on his face when he's happy. Um, and I really appreciate that in the moment he can share his feelings and then shift qu quite quickly out of them and that love is really, it's the purest I've seen um, as, as with any child, really. I mean, he is like every child and he has an extra chromosome. So I'm learning along with him what that means because Max is my normal. I've, I don't have any other children. So how he behaves seems like how exactly he should be behaving. <laughs> when, when people uh, come to, to learn from you in terms of doing self-portrait and learning this process, you know, what, what, what are you hoping is their biggest takeaway? Cause some people may not necessarily pursue this, mm -hmm. you know, as a, as a body work and others people are just sort of want to experiment, but regardless of what sort of the end game is for any individual, what's the, what's the, the, the ultimate goal that you feel like if they take away this, then I've, I've succeeded in terms of being a teacher. Um, that's a really great question. And it really depends on each individual and what they bring because, um, and they do say it right off the bat, what it is. It's a very obvious issue that they say in the private Facebook group that we, we all gather in before we start sharing. Um, and so if somebody can get to a space where they can see that self-portraiture isn't necessarily about criticizing all the places on their body that they hate to look at or, that it's scary for them to see themselves on back, looking back at them, that they can use it as a vehicle to explore their emotions and their life. I think that that is an, an amazing gift because that's what it's given to me. I, I use self-portraiture as my medicine. And if somebody else can, has, has even one experience where they shift that thought of uh, self-deprecation, so to speak, or self-loathing or not wanting to show up for themselves or hiding in some way or whatever that thing is that's keeping them from fully showing up for themselves. If that can shift just a little bit, I feel like 
I feel like crying, honestly. I feel mm-hmm. like they're having the experience that I have and what a gift. And and I can't even believe that I'm here to share it, honestly. Yeah, that's the word I was going to use, gift, because that, that, that's exactly what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is a gift. Teaching is a gift. You know, you mm-hmm. know this, like just yeah, being able to, yeah, <laughs> just being able to show up and say, I do these things and it helps me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it'll help you is extraordinary. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it could be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I've been thinking about this for a while and listening to other photographers talk about who and some of them you've interviewed. So I'm not going to say their name. They're already listed. So I wanted to come up with others. And I I have a giant list, but I'm narrowing it down to Francesca Woodman, who who was one of the first photographers I learned about in art school. She was doing self-portraiture and long exposure, and I didn't understand it, but I connected. It was the first human being I connected with in recovery. <laughs> mm. It changed my entire, the entire world for me to see another girl, young girl, exploring these issues through photography. And she unfortunately killed herself at the age of 22 in 1981, and I got sober in 1987. So Uh the pain that she was feeling, you know, I could relate to what I didn't know. Right. Mm. But her work is extraordinary. It's beyond, we haven't even seen the whole catalog of her work and it is still being celebrated as uh, something as, as if she's a prodigy and there aren't that many of those in photography that we know of. Usually it takes years for people to come to a point where we celebrate their excellence. This woman was far beyond her years. Thank you for reminding me of her. I think I discovered her work about seven years ago. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's a wonderful suggestion. Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. And thank you for, for being on the show. I'm, I'm glad we finally had a chance to connect and, 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 and talk. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's really great. Thanks again for joining us. And for Catherine for sharing her story. To find out more about her and her work, visit katherinejust.com. And thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations that we offer here at TCF. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and the Candid Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donate button on the Candid Frame website or the show notes. Thanks to Daniel Levy and Nancy Wright for their recent contributions. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great interviews we present here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at X. 
And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.